Hello and welcome back to another week in the world of SAS and SASTA with me, Harry Stebbings. If you haven't added me on Snapchat yet, then I'd love to see you there on at hstebbings with two Bs. And you can follow the main man, Jason Lemkin, at JasonLK on Twitter. However, for the show today, and what an exceptional guest we have in the hot seat today. So I'm thrilled to welcome Michael Pryor, co-founder and CEO at Trello, now head of product for Trello with Atlassian following their recent acquisition. For those that do not know, Trello is a beloved visual collaboration tool that lets you work more collaboratively and get more done. Prior to the acquisition, though, they raised from some of the best in the business, including the likes of Spark Capital, Index Ventures, and Box Group. And if that wasn't enough, Michael's also a board member at Stack Overflow. I do also want to say a huge thank you to Jason Lemkin for the intro today, without which the show would not have been possible. However, before we dive into the show today, Algolia is the robust search API that allows developers to integrate lightning-fast, typo-tolerant search into their SaaS product. Out of the box, Algolia offers developers a powerful platform for building great search experiences by owning the entire stack from engine to server, Algolia free up development teams to focus on adding intuitive search that delights users. This is perfect for existing search teams looking to spend less time on maintenance and infrastructure management and more time on user experience. For small SaaS teams, Algolia is a perfect investment on top of your existing stack that requires no specialist engineers. And you can learn more about how Algolia helps SaaS scale search because now SaaSta podcast listeners can get one month free at algolia.com forward slash SaaSta with the coupon code SaaSta podcast. That's algolia.com forward slash SASTA. But enough from me, so without further ado, I'm delighted to welcome Michael Pryor, founder and CEO at Trello. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Michael, it's so fantastic to have you on the show today. A huge thank you to Jason Lemkin for the intro, but thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I'd love to get started though today, Michael, with a two to three minute founding story of Trello and the aha moment for you. So this product came out of Fog Creek Software. We have a culture of building new products over the years. And at one point in time, we were looking around trying to figure out what everyone at the company was doing. My co-founder and I, Joel Spolsky, and he had an idea, which was, what if everyone had a to-do list and it only had five slots in it? Two things you're going to work on now, two things you're going to work on next, and one thing that you're never going to work on. And we were going to call it five things. And then you could look around at everyone's to-do list and see exactly what they were working on. And that idea sort of morphed into what Trello became as we saw the way that people were using Kanban boards and they were using sticky notes on their walls and everything that was happening around the time of software development um, methodologies. But we decided to build a product really for everyone else, not for software developers. And the aha moment came a little bit later when Joel had this idea. We were building this product for a much more consumer audience. And Joel had the idea, hey, we should let, when you when you make the cards on the board, you should be able to put a card cover on the front, like upload an image. And you should be able to change the background of the board to be any background you want. It's sort of these, these ideas that were sort of personalizing the board and letting people really build something that was that was in yes exactly that was theirs and that i think changed you know the way that people connected with trello in a way that people don't usually have that type of connection with productivity software but i'm i'm really one very interesting moment of the journey for me and in particular the the trajectory of trello is is the transition that you made from the project management market to the process management market so i i'm really interested here what was it that made you make this decision and what was the kind of fundamental thesis behind it. So I think that term, the process management that you used, I think that's an interesting term. I don't know if I would use it because I think, well, I certainly wouldn't use project management because I think that term is loaded 
Um, it makes people think of Microsoft Project. It kind of narrows the focus of what Trello is. Trello is much more broader than that. Certainly people use it for project management, but that's not really what we're trying to do. And I like that the idea of process management. And I still, But I still think that when people are trying to solve a problem with Trello, if they're, you know, you're trying to buy your gifts for your, you know, or get all the in-laws together to buy the gifts for your kids for Christmas, and you're trying to make sure no one buys the same gift, it's like a Trello board is perfect for solving that problem. But no one's going to go to Google and site and search for process management software in order to get there. <laughs> right. So so I, I think it's a category to describe it, you know, the people that know what Trello is and when we really get down in the nuts and bolts of it. I think that's a really good way of describing the difference between Trello and a lot of other tools that came before it. But I think it's really difficult for us because I think any kind of nomenclature like that tends to miss what Trello really is and sort of the core audience that's using it and the things that they're solving it for. These are the people using it are people that they're using email and spreadsheets. They're not searching for a process management tool when they're using Trello. But I do think that you're right that there is something more horizontal, more general in nature that Trello is trying to solve. Can I ask, what do you think is then fundamental to making a market transition successful? You did it with Trello. What do you think is, is needed for it to be a successful transition? Word of mouth, virality. I mean, especially if you're a startup, right? You can't spend money to educate the market. I think if you look at other category definers, sort of the category of CRM that kind of didn't exist until Salesforce came along and really defined it in a really strong way and owned that market. For Trello, that, that's always been a struggle for us to figure out, like, what is the market that we're trying to own? How do we convey that? But really what's happening on a day-to-day basis and the reason that we have the position that we have is because people use it and then they love it and then they tell someone else about it, right? And so that, that word of mouth for us became super important. It wasn't us going out and spending marketing money in order to educate the public about what Trello really is. It was just that somebody would say, oh, I have this problem. I feel you know, some anxiety. I don't know what's going on. And people would say, hey, you could use Trello to, to solve that. Or they would see over somebody's shoulder, somebody else solving some problem at work. You get invited to a board. You, it, we made it really, really easy to bring people in to a board. So you know, I think that's that for us, that was part of it. Absolutely. But I'm really pleased you said there about not spending uh, tons of money on marketing uh, and, and getting customer acquisition up there. Because having stalked you for the last few days, I know that you attribute some of your success to luck, but also to three elements of of being a great CEO. So starting on the first one, which is do not run out of money. So with that in mind, as CEO, how did you approach the element then of of kind of conservative cash burn? My background, Joel and I, when we founded Fog Creek, it's a bootstrap company. There's no, we never took VC for Fog Creek. So, you know, from the very early days, we were very cognizant of make money, spend the money either through paying people or R&D and running a cash flow positive business. When we decided to take VC for Trello, the reason that we did it was specifically because we needed to grow faster. We knew we had something that was working and we needed, we wanted, there were four things that we wanted to do simultaneously, but we only had enough resources to do each one, one after another. And it became this moment where we were, it was clear to us that accelerating our growth was, was definitely the right move. But, you know, even then we self-funded Trello for the first three years of his existence through profits that we were making at Fog Creek. Then we took VC funding. And as a founder, you know, you're balancing that dilution against capital, you know, like putting money into the business. One one thing one thing I'll point out that I didn't know a lot about, um, but which turned out to be really fortuitous was venture debt. Um, I think a lot of people 
we didn't end up using it, but we did get a line of credit. And having that line of credit actually took away a lot of anxiety. I mean, so I think in a lot of ways, it was a really smart move on our part. We didn't need it at the time and we ended up never using it. But having it back there as sort of like, a, you know, an ace in the hole, it was really useful. Can I ask, could you explain to the audience maybe who maybe don't know what venture debt is and how it compares then to, to trading equity for for investment? Yeah, I think it's not talked about a lot. I don't know why. In our case, you're getting a loan. Normally, when a bank gives you a loan, it's going to be on accounts receivables. It's based on some kind of capital that you have. And the venture debt is much more not based on that. It's sometimes when you do a, a financing round and you give away, you know, you sell your stock essentially, take dilution. With debt, you're paying some upfront fee and you have some interest payment that you're going to have to make like a regular loan. But a lot of times you can structure it so that you don't have to take the money up front. You can just leave it there. And so you don't pay anything except the setup fees to to establish it. And then if you draw down on that line of credit, you can you, you then have to pay interest. But, you know, right now, interest rates are super low. No, I, I'm, I'm super intrigued, though, to hear about because you obviously said about you're taking the investment there. So I'm really intrigued, intrigued to hear how you're taking the VC money then changed your mentality to conservative cash burn and, and how you balance the growth demands of VCs, which now as a VC, I, I, I know that they do implement uh, with the kind of uh, desire for conservative cash burn. One, I think that we picked really great VCs, the people that we have worked with for um, almost a decade. You know, we worked with Bijan at Spark Capital and, and Neil Reimer over at Index. And Joel and I have worked with them both at Stack Overflow, which is another business that we spun out of Fog Creek and in connection with Jeff Atwood and took VC funding for. So we we had a relationship with really good VCs. So we didn't really have a lot of pressure, you know, to grow, 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 grow. It was really a much more nuanced, intelligent. We're trying to build a very successful business, a big business, and you're weighing a lot of different factors at all times. But one one thing I'll point out for the listeners is they haven't heard it before is uh, Paul Graham writes a, an essay on, I think it's called Default Dead or Alive, which is trying to figure out if, if you stop your spending increases at your company and allow your revenue to increase, like, do you eventually succeed? Like, does that get you, can you get there or do you run out of money before that happens? Sort of a, a gut check way of looking at your company and figuring out whether you're in a controllable situation or an uncontrollable situation. I thought that was a really useful idea. Absolutely. For anyone who's potentially contemplating taking VC money, is there anything that you'd advise them having teetered on the edge yourself of deciding whether to take or not take money? I'm sure like you would have done with Trello when it was going well, but you could have used the money for growth. Is there anything you'd advise them in terms of their thinking of whether to take it or not take it? Yeah. So Joel wrote an article about 15 years ago at this point called, it's called Ben and Jerry's versus Amazon. And it sort of sets out these two giant businesses and why one is sort of perfect for venture capital and why one doesn't make any sense for venture capital. And I think you really have to understand your business and what you're doing. And just because you have a software business and just because you want it to be big does not mean that venture capital is the way to go. There's a there's a time element to that, right? Like you, you when you when you take VC or essentially saying I'm going to use capital or money to pay for things that otherwise 
I could do in a different way, but might take more time. So you're trading time and money, essentially. And not all businesses, that's the right move. Um, certainly a network where you need to own a, 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 the whole network, that's a, a land grab situation. That is the case. But if there's a lot of competitors out there already, it doesn't necessarily mean that VC is the route to go. And so I think you see you know, a lot of successful entrepreneurs. Like uh, there's this guy, Peldi, in Italy. He has a company called Balsamic, which is a, a mock-up tool. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, who basically grew the business from scratch, bootstrapped it himself, never took outside funding, has built a, a successful business. So I don't think the mantra of build a startup, take VC money, do your rounds, and then celebrate your rounds, like because essentially raising money is you're just selling stock in your company, and you're diluting your ownership, and you want to do that, but you want to only do that in the cases where it makes sense and it's the right decision. You said about competition there. Well, it's always an interesting topic for me. To what extent? do you believe in rowing your own race and focusing on building Trello and getting to that 100 million user goal? And then to what extent is it about having the macro view of the market and being aware of potential competitors? What's your thoughts on this dichotomy? Uh, If you look at Trello and you sort of think about the space that we're in, on the one hand, you could say it's like extremely crowded, right? Like everyone is trying to build productivity tools. But I think a lot of the ways in which we built the software and the ideas around it and sort of letting people build solutions that work the way they work instead of trying to build something for them, assuming that we know how they work. You know, there's certain ways that Trello gives you these building blocks in order to create a solution to manage your process. I think that's a, that was a different way of thinking about the problem than was available at the time, you know, back when we when we first built it. And so I think that was really part of what set us apart. And nowadays that's that's starting to be more common. Like a lot of people are throwing boards into their their product. And I think that then it becomes a question for us, okay, so that now that you've invented that paradigm in that way, what is the next challenge? Like how do you stay ahead of the pack over the next five to ten years? Absolutely. Going back to the three uh, elements of being a great CEO that you've outlined before, though, another one is is being the keeper of the vision for your product or company. I, I recently interviewed David Steinberg at, at Zeta Interactive, and he said vision is like a toy used at will by the CEO with flexibility to changing times. He cited the likes of Netflix moving from uh, delivery of movies to kind of digital delivery of movies. Uh, so I'm intrigued to hear what your thoughts are on this kind of transient nature of vision and how you think about it in its permanent structure. Yeah, I think that a lot of the way that we do work today, certainly in the software world, the the people that are doing the work are super empowered to make decisions about what they're doing. And the trick that they have to do is figure out, do I do A or do I do B? They're not sitting there going, hmm, I don't know what to do today. The real problem is that there's so many different things that they could do and so many good ideas. The trick is trying to weigh them against each other to figure out which one to do. At least that's the way it is for us internally. You know, when, we, when we're thinking about building for features for Trello, it's not which future should we build is what should we build next and part of keeping the vision i think is being able to set out a path not necessarily telling people what we're doing but setting out a path for people so that they can make those opportunity cost decisions within the context of your bigger goals right so you're really trying to give them the power to make the best decision and so you want to have a clarity of vision even though people are going to do there's going to be 
a hundred different things that you're doing at your company at any given time. Part of being the CEO is keeping the vision and giving people clarity about the direction that you're headed. So they may be, we're headed east, right? And they might go a little bit northeast, they might go a little bit southeast, but everyone is kind of moving in the same direction, going so that they're all rowing together at least in at a macro level can i ask how did you look to implement that kind of very directional north star for for trello internally in the business and with your employees well one way that we did it was using a trello board <laughs> <laughs> so we have we have a board that's that's called the company overview board and the way that that worked was we would come up with three goals that were guiding us over the next quarter and set up lists for those goals and then people as they worked on different things within the company would set up cards that represented the projects that they were working on that supported those goals. And every Friday, everyone would update their card to tell everyone else in the company what was happening. And so you could stop in on this board and see what was happening across the company that was moving us toward this common goal. And the way that we communicated, okay, the goal is shifting slightly or moving in this other direction or focusing on this other thing was a quarterly process where we would update those lists and sort of give guidance to people that we were focused on a, on a different thing. I love that. How did you do it with the Trello board? That is the best answer. Uh, but then the other and third and final element of being the great CEO that you stated was the ability to recruit top talent. So on that one, I'm intrigued to hear your key learnings in, in talent recruitment that you gained during the entire Trello journey and how you implemented that into the growth of Trello. Yeah, so one thing, when we started Fog Creek Software back in 2000, we were probably one of the only software companies in New York City. Like if you were a developer, you could work at a bank or an insurance company, but there was no place to work that was a pure software company. And so for a long time, it was actually really easy for Joel and me to recruit developers to Fog Creek because there weren't a lot of other options on the East Coast, especially in New York City. You know, and then time went on and you got all kinds of startups, Foursquare, Etsy, Facebook opens an office here, Google, all the big software companies open offices in New York. And that ability to recruit developers, it becomes much more difficult in New York City. However, we started working with people remotely. And the tools that we were using to do that actually were getting a lot better. In fact, we were building one of those tools in Trello and the video conferencing was getting a lot better. And over the past, I think, five years, you know, most of Trello actually works remotely. Most of the company, over 60% of the company is remote. And that became a huge recruiting tool for us because we could find super, super talented people that were anywhere in the world, right? You didn't have to just look geographically in this one location, we could just hire anyone. And for us, that sort of opened the door to an amazing uh, group of talent that otherwise we wouldn't have had access to. Can I ask, what are the secrets to having such a harmonized remote workforce? As you said, I think there's 60% of your team being remote. How do you keep such a harmonized and, and united workforce, something that not many can do? I think one of the, it's actually harder if you only have a few remote people, because then your company doesn't actually feel remote, right? Like one of the things for us was it got easier as more and more people got remote because then we would do things with remote in our minds. Like we would have a meeting and everyone would just be on the video conference on their computer. We wouldn't all get in a conference room and have one person on the TV, you know, who would feel sort of disconnected from the group. It was just everyone was on equal footing 
meeting. Everyone was in the, the video conference. So I think to the extent that you act like a remote company can be really, really important and make it a lot easier. So I think you have to prioritize that. It, there, it comes with costs. So for example, the social aspect that you might have if you're all in, the, in one place, you sort of miss out on that and you have to figure out ways to deal with that. For example, we get everyone together in person once a year, which is not cheap, but it's it's something you have to do. And we also sort of schedule these impromptu, what we call them Mr. Rogers meetings, where four people from the company will be paired together it's sort of at random. You just sort of get connected to somebody at the company to just hang out and talk for 20 minutes on Friday about whatever, not work related, just sort of just get in a video conference and just chat and meet some people. Because if you're working as a distributor remote company, most of the time you're only talking to the people in your team. And so you're not forming connections with the other parts of the company. And so you have to basically put in place some kind of structure to do that. That might normally happen in a physical workplace where you're in the lunchroom or at the coffee bar or something like that. So it's more about understanding how your your the way that your company works and figuring out things that you might need to do that you wouldn't have to do if you were all in one place. But I want I want to dive into my favorite element of the show now, which is called Michael's 60 second Sasta. So it's a, a quick fire round, 60 seconds per answer. How does that sound? Uh-oh. Okay. Uh, so you tweeted about the importance of the co-founder relationship. I think it was a DFJ article. What is the glue for you and your co-founder, Joel, in terms of the relationship? First and foremost, a, a close friend of mine. And I think he's also a very honest and caring human being. You know, so at a very like one of the things that I've, over the years has been abundantly clear with Joel has been he's always looking for the fairest, most transparent way of doing things. If you look up any of his writings about how you equity in a company, how you how you compensate people. It's always around this idea of fairness. And I think in our relationship, that actually helped immensely. What do you know now that you wish you'd known when you started Trello? The thing that I wish I knew now was how important the emotional connection people have to software is. So the sort of, I talked about this before, but the personalization, the board backgrounds, the card covers, the emoji reactions, you know, like things that people are adding to software that allows the software to sort of convey the humanity through it is actually becoming more and more important. And I think that would be something that having the foresight to know that you could have, it helped us and it helped other software tools grow really fast because I think that the way people connect with software is changing. What was the most challenging moment of the Trello journey? I think separating the company from Fog Creek was probably the most challenging moment. It wasn't the legal paperwork was not difficult. It was really the emotional aspect of all being under the same umbrella and then sort of separating that out and taking VC for one piece and and negotiating that emotional disconnect of now we're two separate but connected companies. Um, And I think that's a very, it's a difficult process to go through. What's your favorite SaaS reading material? What are the must-reads when they come in? I think that you got to read Skokes. There's a SaaS Bible, I think it's called. Uh, It's about all all these figure out what CAC, LTV, all these things that, you know, a year, two years ago, three years ago, I had no idea what they were even midway through the journey of Trello. But I sort of poured myself into that and made all kinds of spreadsheets for looking at the financial metrics of the company. And that was hugely important and, and helpful. Is that David Skok? Yeah. Absolutely. For entrepreneurs. Yes. Yeah. That's the website. Yeah. Correct. It's one of my favorites too. But moving out of the quick fire, uh, I do want to, so no need to worry about 60 seconds. I do want to discuss the acquisition. So on that note, how did the deal come about? And I'm intrigued here what the thinking was behind, and this was, we did a uh, kind of question, uh, 
test from the audience on Snapchat. And we had over 300 people ask what was the thinking behind the sale versus raising more venture money and aiming for the 100 million users solo? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. So for any entrepreneur, when you're faced with an acquisition, at least actually this was when I was faced with this acquisition, part of what I was trying to figure out was we have that goal, that 100 million goal. Can I get there faster with the help of Atlassian? And one of the things that convinced me of that is they've they've done 18 acquisitions before. So they've they sort of learned a lot of lessons along the way. And I can see through that process that the founders are very committed to learning from anything that they had done in the past and applying that to this acquisition. So they want to keep us as a standalone service. They really understood what trailer was. The first conversations that we ever had between Mike Cannon Brooks, the co-founder of Atlassian and myself, were all focused around the people. It was around what's, what's the vision for the product and what is the culture of the company? Not, you know, what's the price, right? It wasn't the numbers that was important. It was the people that were important, the customers, what is the vision for this product? And they thought very similarly to the way that I was thinking about Trello. And given their 15-year trajectory and their immense investment in R&D over those years, this, for me, seemed like I can get there faster working with these guys than I could do it alone. I'm, I'm intrigued. I had Jeff Seibler at Crash Six and Fabric on the show previously, uh, and, and he spoke about kind of transparency in the acquisition process and not telling the team out of fear of distracting them or it not happening. Where did you stand on the this transparency element within the acquisition process and the team, and how did you approach that? Yeah, I, I same. I didn't tell anyone, and that process emotionally is awful because we have an internal culture of being super transparent at our company. All of our metrics are shared. You know, we have these town halls every week to talk amongst each other. And so keeping that a secret, it was really draining on me emotionally and physically. People were like, Hey man, you lost like 10 pounds. Are you okay? You know, people kept asking me that. And it was such a relief to finally tell people and explain everything. But the reason that I had to do that was because, you know, sometimes these deals don't work out and there's a lot of work that goes into it. And I felt like if I told people and then it didn't work out, it would be really distracting. First of all, the deal process itself is super distracting, but also just this idea that, hey, this thing was going to happen and then we decided not to do it. I just didn't really want to put people in that position. So I think like most other people, I kept it a secret from almost the entire company. I had to bring some executives in at some point and it's hard. There's a really, really, really hard process to go through. No, I, I, I completely understand. But now at Atlassian, uh, I, I look very, very forward to seeing you achieve your goal of 100 million users. And I can't thank you enough for giving up the time to come on the show today. No, thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. And again, I'd like to say a huge thank you to Michael for giving up his time today to come on the show and reveal the incredible scaling process of Trello and such exciting times that now lie ahead with Atlassian. I do also want to give a big hand to Jason Lemkin for the intro, without which the show would not have been possible. And if you love the show today, I'd love to see you on Snapchat at hstebbings. Likewise, you can follow the main man, Jason Lemkin, on Twitter at JasonLK. But before we leave you today, do not forget to check out Algolia. Now, Algolia is the robust search API that allows developers to integrate lightning-fast typo tolerance 
search into their SaaS product. Out of the box, Algolia offers developers a powerful platform for building great search experiences. By owning the entire stack from engine to server, Algolia free up development teams to focus on adding intuitive search that delights users. This is perfect for existing search teams looking to spend less time on maintenance and infrastructure management and more time on user experience. And for smaller SaaS teams, Algolia is a great investment on top of your existing stack that requires no specialist engineers. And you can learn more about how Algolia helps SaaS scale search because now SASTA podcast listeners can get one month free at algolia.com forward slash SASTA with the coupon code SASTA podcast. As always, I so appreciate all your support and I cannot wait to bring you Friday's episode with Nadeem Hussain at Bright Funnel.